we got a new series we are preaching through this morning, starting a new one. I want to remind the church, and uh, it was a few years ago, listening to a sermon series from a church out west, the pastor had said, I had emphasized so much in our church about sharing Jesus, sharing invites to the gospel, that at one point I realized my church didn't even know what they were sharing people into couldn't even articulate what a life following Jesus was like. That's why before we dive into this series today, we spent seven weeks talking about what it means to follow Jesus. It wasn't just a series I want you to say, oh, we covered that at the beginning of the year. It's something we want as a church you to reference back to, what it means to be living in the word and studying the story of Jesus and his scriptures, to sit in silence and to hear the voice of God and the presence of his spirit today in our lives in prayer, and then how do we submit all of our lives to the lordship of Jesus, our time, our body, and our resources. As we talk in this series about sharing the good news, we want as a church you to know what the good news is, and the good news is that God is knowable, that God is experiential, that God is for you and not against you, and that you have been set free from sin, condemnation, and death because of Christ Jesus. And that under his lordship, as he stands at the right hand of the Father, he is going to make all things good and well that are broken and destructive in our lives. And it begins with us as we submit ourselves to his lordship in our lives. Amen? All right. So as we talk about sharing the good news, I don't want none of y'all to be like, I don't even know what it is. I just told you we walked seven weeks through it. Come in and have conversations. As you are sharing the story of what Jesus has done in your life, it's really natural for it to draw up questions of like, oh, I don't know if I fully thought through this part of my life. That's natural. That's great. That's what it should do. It should draw that out of us. Come back into your small group. Come back into your team leaders. Come back into different pastors of the church and have conversations together about what these areas of our life look like as Christ is transforming us. I grew up in the church. If you don't know, because I tell this story maybe uh, once or twice a year, but if you're newer, I grew up in this church. This is where I grew up as a kid. Some of the older members of the church changed my diapers and watched me fall as I learned to walk. Um, you know who you are, and we're bonded for life. But it grew up here, and I remember distinctly my life of growing up, learning who Jesus was, being invited into that. My parents are Christians. They actually attend this church, which is a, a trippy thing of getting to pastor your own parents. But I remember them teaching me to pray as a young child. They taught me that now I think we see it as kind of creepy, the 18th century prayer of now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I, if I should die in my sleep, I'm practicing this as a seven-year-old, and it did, yes, give me nightmares at times that I would realize I could die in my sleep right now, but Lord, I pray if I do, you take my soul. I remember my parents teaching me this. As crazy as that prayer may sound now, I had a stuffed bear that would record your voice and then speak back to you, right? We would play games of how fast we could say that prayer that the bear would then say it back to you, not realizing at some points how creepy the prayer was, but my bear would say it really quickly and in this high-pitched, distorted voice. My parents, though, all that to say, taught me to pray. They taught me that that was important, that speaking to God and making space for him to hear us and for us to hear him was important in my life. 
I then grew up in this church body, and what I distinctly remember is before I even really understood Jesus or could articulate the gospel, I did feel like I had this ginormous, weird Italian extended family. I'm not Italian at all, which just surprises people sometimes because I talk so much with my hands and I could eat pizza every day. Um, but I had this like family of people. I distinctly remember old Italian women cooking huge pots of sauce for large church dinners. I remember Connie pinching your cheeks off and literally destroying and causing bruises in my cheeks if she could catch you. And if there were new children at the church, we would tell them, run, run, Connie's coming. She's going to pinch your face. I remember Frida telling me to not have my feet up on the pews, and then when she walked away, putting my feet back up on the pews. I remember church picnics and the... Uh, uh, the Cook brothers smashing home runs at church picnics and Mr. Muni leading the people who didn't play sports in playing Bible Pictionary on a whiteboard. And I remember at 11 years old thinking, that's super boring. I'd rather watch them hit home runs. This was, though, an experience of an extended family. And I felt like, oh, I had this bigger family than just my small family that I grew up with. I also distinctly remember at 10 and 11 years old feeling like Sunday service was super boring. I, I did not want to ever be in service. When I graduated out of kids' church, I made every excuse I could think of to not sit through service. I'd be like, How, do you need an elementary volunteer? I'm going to help with the kids. They're doing magic. I'm going to help magic. Oh, nursery, you need a nursery worker? The septic system is clogged. Let me just get on down there. I'm going to help out whatever way I can. I didn't want to be in this room because I remember saying to my mom, they sing so long. And it's standing so long. My feet hurt. My little knees can't take it. I can't sing this long. And then the sermons felt like they lasted forever. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I would say, why do I have to be here? I, can't, I don't understand. I can't follow what's happening. I'll volunteer anywhere. And then I remember at 12 years old in seventh grade, my sister invited me into youth group, and we had had a new youth pastor, and she went on a mission trip with him, and so knew him from before, and she said, come to youth group. I know you think Sunday's boring, but come to youth group. This guy's awesome, and I think you should be there, and I think you're going to love it. And it was three weeks in that we were playing this weird little game that I whispered something to my sister, and I saw one of the leaders their eye catch that I had said that, then they incorporated it back into the game. And while that's a little silly passing thing, I remember in my 12-year-old brain thinking, oh, people here value what I have to say. Oh, they're listening to me. I actually, I, I have importance here. And it wasn't even until three years later in a sermon series entitled Passion, Purity, and Prayer, our youth pastor did a series on, well, Passion, Purity, and Prayer, I just said that. But as he talked about ancient Christian leaders and shared about Martin Luther. And yes, I know, Martin Luther is what led me into falling in love with Jesus as he shared about salvation through faith alone, salvation through faith in Jesus alone. I remember my 14, 15-year-old brain all of a sudden clicking and saying, oh, I need that. I want that. My reaction was to go and buy a biography of the life of Martin Luther, and at 15, I got one chapter in, and I said, nope, can't do this. I started reading my Bible, couldn't finish it, picked it up, put it down, but I distinctly remember it was that moment that Jesus came alive to me. I said, I need him. He's the one I need to pursue. Martin Luther, thank you, that's helpful. Bible, you're showing me Jesus, but that it's Jesus in it. 
Most of us have a story of somebody inviting us into this community, somebody inviting us in to a relationship with Jesus, somebody sharing with us what it's like. For me, it's this like multifaceted of multiple people sharing with me. That may be your story too. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a sibling or a youth pastor, a pastor, a campus ministry leader, a coworker, or a friend who invited you in. Hey, let me tell you what gives meaning to my life. Let me tell you about how I view the world, eternity, life, death, human value. Let me share with you that it comes from Jesus. And let me tell you about this relationship. Each of us are here. Each of us have this experience because someone else shared and invited that story to us. We see it, Jesus teaches it to his disciples in Luke chapter 22. We're gonna begin with this passage. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. You can grab Bible from under every other seat there and follow along with me. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Luke chapter 24, sorry, I said 22. It's Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, this is actually the parallel, the Luke version of what is maybe more famous in Matthew 28, 19, which is the Great Commission. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission. We'll read this together. And then he said, he being Jesus, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that his message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all of these things. In the center of this, is the message that he is sending out his disciples, those who have followed him for three years or maybe even a few months gathered around him. He is sending out his disciples to make more disciples. He's saying, I have invested in you. I have shared with you who I am. I have poured my whole self into you, even through the death on the cross and the resurrection. I have given you all of who I am. Now go and share what I have put in you with others. Go teach them the goodness of who I am. He says it's not that complicated. He says, you were there. You saw it. You witnessed what I've done. You know what I have done in your life. You know who I am because I have spent time with you. Now just go and share the story of who I am that you already know with the people around you and take it to those who don't yet know me. Tell the story. Tell my story. And tell your story of who I have been to you and in you and through you. Essentially, you could boil Luke 24, 44 through 48 to, you know me, keep studying the scriptures that talk about me, tell others about me, and let them know because of the cross, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You've seen this, you know it, go and share it. As we begin a four-week series on sharing the good news, we like to do it in a progressive manner. So each one builds on the next. This week, we're going to talk about what that story is, why that story is important. We're going to talk about the gospel of restoration of a lost family. 
Next week, we'll talk about your testimony, what God's done in you. Following week, we'll talk about how to share it and why that's important with others. And the last week, we'll talk about living a life that when you tell the story of Jesus, others want to hear it and have the integrity in your life that they'll receive it. But the gospel as restoration of lost family. Let's begin where it begins, why this story is so important. In the beginning, God's family was broken and lost. We see Jesus make an allusion to this or a reference to this in his interaction with Zacchaeus. We're not going to dive deep into the Zacchaeus story, but Zacchaeus is a member of God's family. He's an Israelite. He's a Jew, and he is pretty lost. He's kind of betrayed his own nationality, his people, his calling. He's working for an opposing nation who's oppressing his people. He's also exploiting them and stealing money from them. He is far lost from being a member of God's family, but Jesus sees him, Jesus identifies him as lost, and he calls him back into the family. This is how Jesus says it in Luke 19, verses 9 and 10. He says, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. This interaction with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus repents. He confesses and he repents. He says, I am lost. I've done this to my, to my family, to my community. I have done this and I will pay it all back. I'm turning from that and I'm following you now, Jesus. And Jesus says, you are now welcomed back into the family of God. You're connected back in to who you were meant to be, who you've always been, but have been lost. He calls him a true son of Abraham, a restored member of the family. And what we know in this story is that Jesus came to seek and to save his lost family, his lost children. But it's not just the Jewish people. Let's look all the way back, Genesis chapter 11, and we'll see unity through diversity. One of, the, I think, the beautiful threads in Scripture. Genesis chapter 11 tells a wild story of People coming together in rebellion, building a tower, trying to take God's power. There's this interaction thing. Languages are changed. There's confusion. People are spread all out. Let's read the story, then we'll explain a little bit of why this plays into the vast story of God restoring his family. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and they used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. And this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. When you read Babylon in the Old Testament, and it's why it's so important the study of Scripture and being in a small group where we're studying Scripture together and pulling it apart and asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us. But in Babylon, there's three Babylons throughout Scripture. Babylon, in this case, is considered ancient Babylon. This is not the Babylon that comes and takes the Israelites prisoner, sacks Jerusalem. It's not that Babylon. That's a later Babylon. This is considered like the older Babylonian kingdom, ancient Babylon. We're not sure exactly where, what time frame this is, but ancient Babylon. Then there's 
Babylon that we know in the Old Testament, the historical books that came and sacked Jerusalem. Then there's Babylon, the wide-reaching metaphor. Babylon that represents any kingdom of this earth that is moving against God's will and plan. It's where you see in Revelation, Babylon comes up in Revelation. It's any kingdom of this world that's working against God's good creation, love of his people, restoring them back. Babylon can be any place or kingdom or, or system pushing against God. But ancient Babylon we're talking about here. God sends his people out. He says in Genesis 1:27, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and spread. Become diverse. Become beautiful. Fill this whole world. And as you move to the north, as you move to the south, as you fill every continent of this planet, you're going to look different. You're going to talk different. But you're going to be united together because my image is in you and you reflect me in this whole world. And that there is beauty in God's image being multiplied and shared all throughout the world. But humanity said, nah, that's scary. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be spread out. Don't want to move out? Let's stick it together. Let's stay together, guys. I know God has this plan to move through us, but we can make a better plan. Our better plan is that if we unite our own powers, our own minds, we can make our own image here. We can create our own way. And in this way, the Tower of Babel is a competitor of God's plan and will. It's humanity saying, we have a better plan. We have a better way. We can figure this out on our own. The product of what happens is division. God's family is broken and spread out. Not spread out in the beautiful diversity God had planned, but spread out in divisive competition that we experience still today whenever two different human groups are together. They're spread, they're competing, they don't understand each other. It brings chaos and confusion. And God's people are now set at odds with each other. At the same time, a little bit later, in the same chapter of Genesis 11, we see the hint of God's plan to restore and redeem all of this. Through a little family in Ur, Genesis 11, verse 31. One day, Terah took his son, Abram, who will become Abraham, his daughter-in-law, Sarai, who becomes Sarah, and his grandson, Lot. And they moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was headed for the land of Canaan. But they stopped at Haran and settled there. This is the first hint of what God's doing. God creates a family. Adam and Eve, a husband and wife who have children. There is family imagery. Humanity is a family. We see a family now spreading out, but instead the family is divided and broken. And God says, I will fix my family by the mechanism of family. I'll choose one family, and through this family, I will reveal my redemption, love, grace, and plan through this family. Anything special about the family? Not necessarily. They're obedient. They're obedient to God's voice. Abram is obedient to God's call, and he goes when God calls. We see God begin to restore through family. Now, we live not like ancient Babylon. We're not trying to build towers in a literal sense. But we do live in a world that is very, very connected with a lot of human beings. We see this, but we struggle in our modern world with, I think, two forces that kind of pull us apart, isolation and tribalism. Isolation is maybe the easier one to understand or the more common phrase, that we live really isolated lives. We even had this conversation even just yesterday, um, Caitlin and I, my wife is a teacher, and was saying she sees a difference in the younger teachers 
She's like, the younger teachers don't seem like they want to connect with the rest of us. They're just kind of doing their own thing. They're polite and friendly, but they don't really have a desire to get connected. I said, yeah, I've read a lot of articles about the changing culture now. And it's that because we have these phones in our pockets, because I can see everything about your life already on social media, I don't feel like I have to get to know you in these what we would think of shallow senses. I don't have to go hang out at a restaurant. I don't have to sit after class with you. I don't need that connection. I'm already sort of connected to everyone I want to be connected with already. And we live with an awareness of everybody, but we also live in this isolating sense. And the barrier comes up because the parts of me that you get to see are the parts I very carefully curated for you to see as a smokescreen to protect who I really am inside, the things that really scare me about myself, the things I'm insecure about, the things I'm worried about, the shames I think about my family or my past decisions or what I've done, my fears of inadequacy, I don't really let you know those things. I kind of create a barrier and hold them inside. And so we kind of know each other, but really internally we stay isolated from each other. And you can even feel this in church by how we smile and handshake and then quickly move to our cars afterwards. There is a danger in letting other people truly know who we are. And social media also kind of reminds us at the same time of how dangerous it is because I have 24-hour news cycles and I have Twitter feeds of how terrible human beings are. And so I'm like, well, I don't really want to let these people in because they look pretty terrible. And that's kind of, in a nutshell, the truth of humanity. We are made in God's image, but we are fallen and broken. There's a beauty in us. There's also a danger in us. That's just the truth. That's just the reality. And then so we develop this other thing. Outside of isolation, we develop what's known as tribalism. Tribalism is not real community. Tribalism is the preservation of ourselves by identifying ourselves as a group opposed to another. Uh, we're, we are good. I am good because I'm not those other people. Best version of it you can see very clearly is West Side Story, right? They're both immigrant groups coming into the U.S. trying to figure it out. They're Puerto Rican and they're Irish, and really their problems are about the same, trying to figure it out, but then they point a finger and say, it would be better if they weren't here. They're the problem. They're the evil ones. Sure, they can dance and they can sing, but they are evil. Even though they look just like us and dance just like us, they're not us. Tribalism is, the problem is the other groups, not my tribe, not my group that votes a certain way, not my tribe that likes certain foods, not my tribe that talks with a certain accent, not my tribe that works a certain way. We create tribalism that divides. And that's the heart of God's plan has always been to break down those dividing lines. Tribalism is at the center of the story of Babylon, the story of the tower. It's tribalism. It's ours and not others, where God says, beauty in diversity Unity in diversity. Bring all of yourself, all of your differences, but bring them united by the fact that you are my image bearers and in you is the image of me and come together under my grace and mercy. We have lost one unifying characteristic of humanity and we've lost it in the digital age and it's simply put as this. All human life is valuable. All of it. Every last iota of it, 
from gestation in the womb to those in prison and those later in life exploring how to live out with dignity the end of our lives, those trying to seek a new home, leaving desperation behind them, those vulnerable in our communities reaching out, all human life is valuable. This can get lost when we just watch fake versions of humans suffering online or when we see the plurality of all of the world all at once As Stalin once said, a few lives lost is a tragedy, millions of lives lost is a statistic, and we live in a world of millions and billions. But that the gospel message is human life is valuable because humans are made in the image of God. What are the implications of this? In the Old Testament, there's a running thread that scholars call the quartet of the vulnerable that the priority throughout the Old Testament as the prophets write is something known as the quartet of the vulnerable, the four people groups that are most vulnerable. In their time, it was widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. As you kind of hear this quartet of the vulnerable, I think it's really catchy and it sticks in the brain. But as you read the Old Testament, you will see this. You read Deuteronomy, you see the priority of this as God's law is laid out, protecting widows, protecting orphans, caring for immigrants, and the poor among them. Our categories now are slightly different, but the overall idea is that the gospel message is restoring back all of God's people, and many of God's people are in vulnerable places that need to be cared for and restored back. The theme of the Old Testament prophets is often the anger of God that God's family is ignoring and exploiting the vulnerable. You read the prophets, you read Amos, you read the story of, look at how God's vulnerable people are being used and abused and destroyed. You see Jesus, the one time he creates a whip and literally whips people and overturns tables is when he sees in God's temple those vulnerable people who are coming before God with their vulnerabilities to be forgiven, being exploited by those who want to make money off of them. We see Jesus angry. At the core of it is the solution to all of this, that we see ourselves interconnected to our family as fellow image bearers in need of salvation. One key Paul gives us is a passage in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, We are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against each other. Our battle is not against people. Our battle is not against other politicians. Our battle is not against other people competing for resources. That is not the battle of all image bearers on this earth. Our battle is against spiritual forces that work towards chaos and destruction and death among God's people. It's hard to share the gospel with people you think are the problem. It is hard to love people into Christ that you think are evil and destructive. The truth is, human beings are not the evil, destructive forces of this world. We are the victims of spiritual forces corrupting God's good creation. People are not our enemies. People, as Scripture says, are our family. That's why Jesus left us with his Holy Spirit. It's why he put his Spirit inside of us. 
He said, by this spirit in you, you will battle the spirits that are destroying this world and destroying and distorting my image bearers. You will pray by my spirit and you will set people free. You will trust in my spirit moving through you and it will lead others into my loving presence and embrace. In short, begin and continue the process of sharing faith in prayer. Every step of the journey, begin it and continue it through prayer. If you want to have a conversation with a friend or a family member about Jesus or invite someone to church, start praying for them first. All throughout this series, in every step, today, pray, God, give me a burden for your lost children. If you don't have a burden for it, begin. Holy Spirit, give me that burden. I want to feel it. I want to know that your people are important. Holy Spirit, transform me that I care about what you care about. Next week, search my heart, Holy Spirit. Remind me of the work you have done in me and how good you have been to me. On March 26th, Holy Spirit, be at work in my friends and family who don't know you. Do the work I can't do yet. Speak to their hearts. And then April 2nd, Palm Sunday, pray, Holy Spirit, make me more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, produce your fruit and love and grace in my life. Rid me of sin and produce your presence in me. God's family is broken, but he's working through his family to restore them again. And at the heart of this is that his family produced one beautiful agent of love and grace and order and power in Christ Jesus, God himself putting on flesh. Amen? Our broken family is restored by the gospel. It's the gospel message that brings us back together. How do we know this? Well, we have an entire book after the gospels called the book of Acts that shows God implementing restoration and healing for all of his diverse people by the message, by the power of Christ Jesus' death and resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the resurrected Jesus, before he left this earth, speaking to his disciples. If you've ever been through growth track, you might know this pretty well. If you haven't been, you should go to growth track. Acts 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The charge to followers of Jesus is to be witnesses of what they saw, as we already saw in Luke 24. Be witnesses that death, the great fear and opponent of humanity of life is death. It's been defeated by Christ Jesus. Tell the story of the resurrection. That a person who was dead in the grave that should not come back to life conquered death and is alive. That Jesus is not a story of a good man who died. Jesus is the story of God in flesh who conquered death and is alive still today. Tell that story. Tell the story that sin that holds us in shame and destruction has been defeated in Christ Jesus. That all that holds you back, your insecurities, your shame, your guilt, your fear over you not being enough or doing enough or accomplishing enough has been defeated as Christ has declared you enough by his blood given to cover you. And they have both been defeated by Jesus, King Jesus, who rules and reigns over this creation and this kingdom now. 
And then tell them, let them, let them know what kind of king and kingdom now rules. We serve a King Jesus who breaks down divisions, who crosses lines people say don't cross, who crosses racial divides, economic divides, gender divides. He crosses all of them and says, you are all image bearers. He goes and he reaches out to the woman and he reaches out to the Samaritan and he reaches out to the Roman conquerors. He brings them all together. That's the king that now leads us. He breaks down divisions. He invites and he seeks out those who are lost. Luke dedicates an entire chapter to insane stories of people irrationally pursuing things that are lost, a coin that is lost, and then a party that costs way more than the coin that was lost. A sheep that is lost, that has come in, and then a party that would have a sheep offered at the party. A lost son who was given it all, came back, and then celebrates with even more resources. This irrational celebration is the king who now rules over us. He is so excited to restore and find what is lost. That's the king who rules and reigns. He heals what is broken. He confronts those who cause separation and use power to exploit. And he overcomes evil with sacrificial love. He says, how do you do this? This is scary. I don't know. I don't know the whole story of the Bible. How am I going to tell this to my friends? I, the Romans are going to kill me. And he doesn't say that's not true. But he does say, my Holy Spirit will give power in you to be able to do this. My Holy Spirit will unite you guys together. By the power of his spirit living in his people, you will have me with you always. You will know I've never left you. You will know that I'm always with you. By the power of my spirit, you will be connected to me. By the power of my spirit, you will be united together as one, each of you together in one spirit. You will have power to restore creation. Some of you will pray and you will see dead things come back to life. Some of you will pray and see broken things healed and restored. By my spirit, you will see this. And here is how the uniting of his spirit works. And this is going to bring us back to Genesis 11. Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. So Jesus gave that command. He ascended into heaven. He said, wait for my spirit. And everyone was present. And was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At the time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own language being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee and yet we hear them speaking in our own native language. Scholars call the moment of Pentecost the anti-Babylon. In Babylon, human beings try to stay united, spoken different languages, cause confusion and division. In Acts, people come from all over the region speaking different languages and now are understood. And what Luke is telling us is not just that the Holy Spirit can work through signs and wonders as he does and can and is beautiful when he does, but the more important is that because of Christ Jesus, all of God's lost, scattered children and family will be united back together again. That moment from thousands or millions of years ago, however you read Genesis 11, that ancient story of human beings by their own power being divided is now redeemed and reconciled under the lordship of Christ Jesus. And how do we know it? When his living spirit shows up 
all the diversity is brought back together in order and understanding and as a family. People from every region of different languages united in the moment of Pentecost. Rather than grabbing power, power is given through submission. The church submits to Christ and receives power by his spirit. Divisions are not erased, but they are united under the lordship of Christ. As we close, we want to see what the early church did. What's our actual practical takeaway from this? When you read the story of Acts, there's three things that the church did and did very quickly after this. They prayed. We see it in Acts 1. We see it in Acts 5. We see it all throughout. They come together and they pray. They pray and then God does things human beings shouldn't be able to do and he does it through human beings. He prays and he gives them direction. They pray and he gives them signs and wonders. They pray and he gives them confidence and reminds them of what he's doing. They pray continually. Number two, they give. They become incredibly generous people as we talked about last week. They give to the vulnerable among them. They give to the poor among them. That's a large part of what the communion dinner in the early church was about. We all come together and we share this meal. And those of us who have a lot, bring a lot. Those of us who have a little, don't bring anything because you can't. And eat what those of us who have a lot do at this table together. We are one and we're sharing what we have together. Crazy stories of people selling all of their property and giving it to the poor and giving it to the vulnerable among them. We have people like Paul and people like Barnabas and Luke sent out from the church and people are financially supporting them in order to go and share the story of Jesus Christ. They become incredibly generous people. And third, they go. They go all over the place. Jesus says, go and make, and they go and they make. They go all over the place. They go as far as India. Thomas goes to India and people who are Christians in India still consider themselves as disciples of Thomas from 2,000 years ago because he came all the way to the east. We see Paul driving towards the west and trying to get to Spain and coming to Rome. We see Christians going south into Africa, north into the wilderness of Europe. We see them going and sharing the story of Christ Jesus. They prayed. They gave, and they went. How do we live this out? How do we live as a restored family, restoring a family? That's our call as a church, right? We are a restored family with the work of restoring God's family. It's always been his method, whether it's Abraham's family or the kingdom of Israel or the disciples around Jesus. God creates these families together with a mission of bringing other families into it. As we pray, like the early church prayed, prayer is the greatest antidote to our jaded modern personas. I'm as jaded as they come. It's one of the things Christ is constantly working on me on, his spirit is working on me, but we can just live jaded. Like, what does it matter? Who cares? It's all gonna whatever People are going to ruin it. The churches, I don't know, with that church or that pastor. I don't know about this message or how to do it. If those people deserve, what does it matter? In prayer, we make a commitment that it matters. And we ask God to put on our heart all the things that matter. God, transform me and make me sensitive to the suffering of your people. God, make me sensitive to the fact that there are sons and daughters 
who live in this world, who never know that they are loved and valued by the God who made them and may live and die on this world without knowing the saving grace of your son. Lord, give me the compassion to those who are suffering around me, my neighbors, my family, my friends. Pray for our broken world to be healed. Pray for vulnerable to receive comfort. Pray for the gospel to be shared around the world and pray for those who have gone to take the gospel around the world. You can write that down, but also like I got a bunch of these, so I'm gonna move quick. Give, how do we give today? Honestly, there's a lot of ways you can give and I'm not the pastor that says you have to only give here and this is the only way. There are lots of ministries and calls that God is working on and moving in you to do, but it is why we created Kingdom Builders. We created it to put together a group of missionaries and funds that we think are important to the kingdom of God and as you give to Kingdom Builders, it empowers us as leaders to be able to help and serve. I just had us put together in the last four years or so of all the things that Kingdom Builders has allowed us to do. Your generosity has allowed us to do. We have 27 missionary partners in the U.S. and around the world. Every year, we support them every month, month in and month out, in every continent but two. None are in Antarctica. We just don't care about those, I guess, researchers down there. And we don't have any in Africa right now. But we have missionaries in every other continent around the world. A global church building in Turkey, Mexico, Antigua, and then in this year, St. Kitts, we are helping to build actual church buildings for churches to come together. Housing refugees and disaster relief in Ukraine and Afghanistan, those were two that we didn't plan but were able to react to because of the generosity of this church. Local church expansion, planting churches in New Jersey, like Connect Church, hearing from Pastor Frank. Local service projects that feed people in our neighborhood through Task, Homefront, Mercer Street Friends, Women's Space, Sheltering Vulnerable Women, Hopewell Food Pantry right in our backyard, and Addiction Recovery through Teen Challenge, where people who struggle with addiction are given an opportunity to find freedom, and specifically the freedom that comes through Christ Jesus. And then third, we give to future Christian leaders, caring for the next generation of children, youth, college students with retreat scholarships, short-term mission trips, kids camps, and campus ministry. It's done all of those things because we believe God has blessed us. We are blessed people, and we can't go to every region of the world. We can't. We're not. We're finite people, but we can give and support those who are and are working in those areas, and we can come alongside of them and say, hey, I'm gonna support you, and I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna give so that you can do what God has called you in the best possible way. And third, go. And go will be kind of the heart of this series, that we are called to go. You may not be called to be a missionary in some other region of the world, or some of you might. People from this church body have. Some of our missionaries are from our church body who felt a call to go and become a missionary in a foreign world, but we are all called to be missionaries and sharing the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our environments. In Genesis chapter 12, following 11, Abraham goes. That's like the defining characteristic of Abraham is when God called him to go, he went. That's Abraham's big call. God said, go. He said, all right. He said, go up the mountain. He said, okay. He said, go to this new region. All right, I'm going to do that. All we are called to do is to go and share the story. Go and share it with others. Go and share what God's done. 
Know your testimony as you go. Know what God's done. We'll talk about this next week. Invest in loving relationships. We'll talk about that on the 26th. Love others as Christ has loved you. And then lastly, share your story. Know what God's done. Invest in others. Love them as Christ has loved you. And share your story. That's the call. That's the Luke 24 direction. That's the Acts 1-8 inspiration. That's the Matthew 28-19 charge for us is to know who we are, invest in other image bearers, love them as Christ loved us, and share the story of Christ Jesus, his power and his presence. But at the start of this series, I want to give you an opportunity just to be reminded of how good God is And some of us, as we come into a series like this, it's tough. Like, I'm not really the evangelist type. I get a tiny bit of anxiety every time I get my haircut because I know at some point in the haircut, they're going to ask me what I do. And I'm going to be like, I'm a pastor. And then either they're not going to say anything else the rest of my haircut, or it's going to be this weird descending thing of like, oh, that's so great. That's so sweet. And they don't really understand what I do. And, but I know every time it's an opportunity for me to just share why I do what I do because of how much I love Jesus, because of how great he is, of what he's done for me and he's done for all of us. You also have that call. Maybe not when you get your haircut, but you have that call to be sharing Jesus in your life. And we want to, this morning, start in prayer and invite the Holy Spirit, as he did in Acts, to transform us, to make our heart like his, that we would care about the global burden and reach of all of God's people, all of his family being brought back together under the Lordship of Christ. If you can, if you'll stand with me all over the room. I want to give you a chance this morning to pray with me. If you are not a follower of Jesus or you don't consider yourself a Christian, I want to give you a chance just to start that journey, to pray one simple prayer of knowing him. For all the rest of us, if you are a follower of Jesus already, use this as a moment to just recommit into this gospel story of what God has done and is doing. You pray this along with me. Jesus, in this moment, I believe in you. I believe in your goodness and your power that you are God who put on flesh to restore back his lost family through grace and mercy and love and sacrifice. And that Jesus, you lived this example. You healed, you sought people, you preached the kingdom of God to your people and then you lived it by putting our sin our shame, our death onto your own shoulders on the cross. You died for our sins. You were buried in the ground. And on the third day, you conquered death. You rose from the ground, resurrected, so that we could follow you into resurrected fullness of life. You gave your life for us. Today, we commit our life to follow you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As the worship team leads us in one final song, I want to just give space to pray and respond. You may at the end of a sermon series like this say, I'm still not that excited about this. This is still kind of scary. The Holy Spirit lives in you. If you've called on the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. But God can encourage you 
by pouring out his spirit on you. And we'll take a minute. The altars will be open. I'll invite two of our elders to be on the left and the right. If you want us to pray with you, we would love to pray with you and pray over you. But the altar will be open as a space to say, God, I am here. May your Holy Spirit speak to me, transform me, and make my heart like your heart. May what breaks your heart break mine and may have a conviction and the power of your spirit in me to go and share your story. The altars will be open as the team leads. Let me pray over you. Though we invite your spirit into the room, may we care about what you care about. May we value what you value because you are so good and worthy of following. Your story is so good and worthy of sharing. May your Holy Spirit empower us and unite us today. In your name, amen. Altar space is open to respond as the team leads us in one final song.